You are listening to part six of the 1983 through 84 John series, preached by Pastor John Castile, recorded at 11 a.m. on March 4th, 1984. Praise the Lord. He's good, isn't he? Been good to you? Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm just, I've, we just had a, a terribly cold winter, haven't we? I was uh, went to the rodeo with my kids the other day and sitting there in the sunshine in the first of March, I just said, thank you, Jesus, for Tucson. Amen. Amen. John chapter 3. Would you open your Bibles with me? As you can tell, we're not trying to get you out of here at 1230 this morning. And you might have a burnt offering when you get home. <laughs> but I'll try to get you out soon, so please uh, try to stay as long as you can, uh, especially as we get close to times of, of commitment and talking to the people about their lives with Jesus. It's really not a time to move in the aisles. It's a time for you to just wait two or three more minutes in case that person uh, is distracted by your moving. So. Let's try to stay for the whole thing if it's possible. I realize some of you have to catch buses and uh, you have other appointments that you're making. Read with me, please, from John chapter 3, and we'll read for the first 17 verses together. Let's read it together. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Read with me, would you? The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would now take these words and put them deeply into our hearts. Father, we come to you now and we ask that that same anointing of your Spirit that has been on the service, that has moved in healing and renewal, would now move into our hearts planting deeply into our spirits these words, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. It's obvious I cannot cover all of these verses well in the time that's remaining. And the Lord willing, we'll continue with this message next Sunday and go through the book of John now for some period of time. But this morning I want to just point out some issues to you that are very important. First of all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That is, he belonged to a, quote, brotherhood of men who had pledged themselves to live their lives in strict obedience to every command and precept of the law of Moses. They were the elite among the religious in their day. They were considered the most consecrated of all people. And the way they did this, you see, is that God had given what is called the law through Moses. Five books in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were considered to be, quote, the law. And in that law was every issue that would confront mankind, not explicitly, but implicitly. That is, the principles could be applied to every condition of life. And they believed that. And therefore, their scribes and their leaders went through the law and interpreted the law. In fact, the Torah today is exactly that. It is the... Uh, did I say that right? The, the Talmud. It wasn't the Torah. The Talmud is exactly that. It was the, the second generation of books that were taken to explain all the intricacies of the law. For example, when God said, Thou shalt not bear any burden on the Sabbath. They had to determine what a burden was. And so they decided what would be a burden if it was salt... If it was oil, how much oil would be a burden, how much uh, flour would be a burden, how much wheat. They decided well, when God said, you shall not go out of your homes, they had to dis distinguish how far from your home was out of your home. And so they went through the law of God and implicitly laid down what seemed to them the understanding of what God was saying. Then these men called Pharisees. And this is why we need to understand these things, because in our English language today, to be pharisaical, or to be a Pharisee, is to be a religious hypocrite. But I want you to understand that in that day, even though there was hypocrisy among the Pharisees, to be a Pharisee were those people who had taken a public oath between two or three witnesses at least before God to keep every portion of the law of God and live by it. Now, besides being a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. The language makes it clear that he was one of the judges that made up the Sanhedrin. This is the governing body of Israel. It would be like our Congress. Even though under Roman rule they were somewhat restrict, restricted, they still ruled the people. And it was taken, if you remember, from what happened to Moses in the wilderness. When he called out to God and said, the leadership of this people is too heavy upon me. The decisions weigh heavily upon me. Their burden is too great. And God said, choose 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders, 
and I will put my spirit, the spirit that is upon you, upon them. And when these seventy men gathered before God, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they prophesied the first time that it happened in the Bible, telling us that God's spirit was definitely upon them. The spirit was, that was upon Moses had fallen upon them and they were given the ability then to rule the people. Now that process of government had remained intact. And those 70 elders plus the high priest, that's what Sanhedrin means, 70 plus 1, were still the rulership of Israel. And Nicodemus was one of those rulers. They ruled first in matters of religion. That is, every Jew in every place in the world was subject to their interpretation of the Jewish religion. Second, they were to maintain current doctrinal uh, purity by judging and dealing with all of the prophets and the teachers that were raised up in the land. Third, they would rule in decisions of temporal nature concerning the law and make judgments that would reach them in, as a Supreme Court would sit in the United States. Now Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus by night. Now this is an interesting comment from John. It could mean many things. The Bible doesn't tell us often the time of day that somebody came to Jesus. But when it says Nicodemus came by night, there are many things we could understand by that. First, it was commonly held that to study the law, one would study at night and thereby not be distracted and interrupted. So it was a better time to study. Now Jesus was constantly being interrupted by the crowds and the, the people that would press themselves to see him. And it may be that Nicodemus came to him by night to be able to confer with him without interruption or without distraction and to personally sense his spirit and his motivation as it was his responsibility to make judgments of those who prophesied and spoke in Israel. Another possibility was that Nicodemus felt it somewhat embarrassing to come to Jesus and maybe didn't want the public to see him come to Jesus. Being a lawyer, being a, a judge, being a Pharisee, it would display a need in his life that possibly he would need to cover up. It may have been a social prominence for him. There is evidence by his name, Nicodemus, that he was of a very high family in Israel. Because in some of the political history of Israel during that time, during those hundred or so years around that, several prominent men called Nicodemus rise up. And the custom was to pass those names down from father to son. So we know possibly three things by that. One, that he was extremely given to the work and the ways of God. Secondly, he was extremely given to his political life. And thirdly, he was probably of a very prominent family in Israel. Like us, Nicodemus may have been a very complex man, and instead of coming just for one of those reasons, he might have come with all three reasons in mind. He might have wanted to sense Jesus. He might have wanted to do it without distraction. But he also might have wanted to cover his tracks. Note with me Jesus' way of dealing with Nicodemus and the way he talked with him. He simply bypasses the social talk and moves immediately to the issues at hand that were troubling Nicodemus. Obviously, Nicodemus was dissatisfied. Even though he had pursued vigorously both political and religious fields, there was an emptiness, no doubt, in his heart that caused him to seek after this wandering nomad prophet from Galilee. But Jesus knew exactly what Nicodemus needed. 
It's very interesting to note that of all the cases where Jesus talked with people, then they're written down in your Bible, those occasions that, that God has seen fit to give us, Nicodemus is the only person on record where Jesus spoke of the new birth. Something that we hold so prominent, the only record we have of it is in Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus. Now this was not because being born again was a minor part of the theme of salvation Jesus was presenting, but because just the opposite is true. This is the first time Jesus had the opportunity, no doubt, to speak to the Sanhedrin and to explain to them the, the heart of the message that God had brought him to earth for. Nicodemus epitomized what the law could not do. Human effort and good works and good parenting and family background and social positioning were all here and yet led to nothing. To emptiness. It was all in Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he did not need just to add something to his life for happiness. He didn't need just to turn over a new leaf. He was not just experiencing certain frustrations with his job or something that was causing an emptiness within him. His life was what it was because he needed not just knowledge of God, not just know about God, not just religious trimmings, not just human effort. He needed an experience with God. He needed to meet God. And that's what Jesus is all about. That's why he's called the door. The door presupposes that there is a wall, a barrier between you and God. There is no fellowship, no relationship with men and God unless they come through Jesus. And he is the opening in that barrier that leads them into relationship with God. But that's another message. Nicodemus opens his conversation with Jesus in the typical political way. And it's interesting how it happens to me, too. You know, I'm a pastor, but I don't have any credentials, and I don't have all the things that the world looks to for a pastor to have, except now I wear suits. And uh, who knows, maybe one of these days I'll wear a collar or something like that. But I want you to notice what they do with me in the town when I say I'm from Grace Chapel. They go heavy on the, hello, reverend. I don't know what they say behind me. Maybe I do know. <laughs> but there's a, a political thing in the world in, of a businessman or anybody say, the reverend. And, you know, it's kind of a social buildup. And Nicodemus starts Jesus with, Rabbi. That means teacher or learned one or instructor. And then he says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Who's we? Well, that would insinuate that the whole Sanhedrin was aware that Jesus had come from God. Now, I don't believe that was true. Later on, it's proven in Scripture that they did not believe he came from God. But Nicodemus wades in. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles that thou doest unless God be with him. Nicodemus may have had that personal persuasion, or he may have just been playing games. Whatever, Jesus in his great mercy. Aren't you glad he deals with us? 
That way, he doesn't always confront all of our sinfulness. He just bypasses it. Takes advantage of the fact that there is a, a confrontation and there is a touching time. And he forgets our sin and goes right to the root of our problem. And Jesus said to him, listen to what he said. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice that if Jesus had been looking for recognition from the top men of the nation, he could have been sidetracked here. But his love is so precious in that he sidetracks all of that stuff and instead goes himself, mainline, direct to the heart of Nicodemus because he loved him. I'm glad that God loves us from every station of life. God doesn't just love down and outers. He loves up and outers too. And he loves middle outers. <laughs> and he loves semi-middle outers. And semi-up and outers. And semi-bottom outers. And he loves us so much that he's able to reach us just like we are. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, seeing the kingdom means perceiving it and understanding it or witnessing it or, or knowing it, what it's about. You cannot understand the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. That was Jesus' message. Now, this was the problem of the rulership of that day. They wanted to know all about God through human endeavor and study and with the limitations of their own mind and heart were perceiving and groping after God, as Paul said, yet they could not understand it without experiencing the spiritual birth which would bring them into a spiritual dimension. Nicodemus said unto him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, not seeing it this time or perceiving it, but entering in, you cannot experience or involve yourself in the kingdom of God without being born again. Some people would want to involve themselves without understanding. Some people would want to understand without necessarily involvement. Jesus says, neither one works. There is the need to be born again. Then Jesus explains himself. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So Jesus explains that just as there is a natural birth to become a natural man, there is a spiritual birth to become a spiritual man. Being born of water and of the spirit is, I believe, the explanation of the two births. Now, I know that within our congregation there are many of you who believe that water, being born of water, is water baptism. And others of you believe that the water speaks of the Word and that you're born of the Word and the Spirit, and that combines into the new birth. Well, I don't mind all of that, but I think that Jesus was simply saying that just as you are formed and created and you have your being after conception in a water sack in, your in the mother's stomach. And that that place is where that being is formed. And when that water sack breaks, it lubricates and enables the birth process. With the mother's pushing and the movement of the bones and the lubrication of the passage, that child is pushed 
into another realm of existence by the birth process. And it takes the water to accomplish that. But while that child is in its water sack, it is not complete. And so as its last few days are accomplished in the mother's womb, the child begins to stretch and to kick and to move and to cause the mother terrible problems as he wants out. <laughs> Let me out is the cry of the baby. And the mother's in total agreement usually. <laughs> what is happening is that child has eyes that are made to see, but it can't see in its mother's womb. It has ears that are, there's only a certain kind of hearing that goes on, but it's garbled and not complete. Lungs want to breathe and they cannot breathe that water. It has a mouth that is already starting to suck, waiting for a new kind of alimentation. It has feet that want to move and hands. It has a being that yearns for its life. But it must be born. It must be ushered into that experience by the water process. And that's exactly what God says happens in the Spirit. You were created with spiritual sensitivity, with spiritual understanding, with eyes, spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, a spiritual dimension, spiritual growth potential. And yet, when you're just in your flesh alone, you're like that baby that's in the womb, you're always incomplete. And just as that baby is in formation, God's Spirit begins to deal with a man or a woman. And as He does, and their spirit begins to come to a place of being birthed into God, there is a dissatisfaction and a restlessness, an emptiness, a craving to become what God has destined them to become. But there's a process of birth that needs to happen also in the spirit as well as the natural process of birth in the flesh. Well, Jesus then explains how this happens in verse 8. He says, <laughs> praise the Lord, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now this is a very interesting word because Jesus very simply explains a phenomena to Nicodemus. I grew up in school when we were in a scientific binge and we were saying, if you can't see it under a microscope and if you can't test it in a test tube, it isn't real. People don't say that anymore as much. But there is still left in all of us the dregs of that idea that because we don't see the Spirit of God or cannot test God out in a test tube, that He's not there and the dimension of the Spirit is not there. It's still there in root form in all of our lives. We don't have a way to evidence it. And Jesus brought the, the common little thing about the wind. Now it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word rosh and the Greek word pneuma were both translatable in three ways. One was breath. One was spirit, and one was wind. And the two languages were exactly the same in that, in that perspective of their understanding of that word spirit. So when Jesus said, the wind bloweth, 
He can be speaking of breath or spirit or wind. And so the word was so commonly used that the context is clearly the wind. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. You don't understand the causes and the dimensions of the wind. But you don't deny its existence just because you can't see it with your natural eye. But instead, you see its results. You hear its sound. You sense it upon your face and in your clothing and in your hair. You watch it in the, we- in, in, in the leaves blowing in the trees. You see it in the grass. You know the wind is blowing. And Jesus said that's the way it is with the Spirit. If you want to know whether there's a spiritual birth or not, you can see it in the lives of those that it touches. There is a dimension when the rustling of the leaves is like God dealing with a body of people like He has with us. There's a story told about an evangelist of the last century who who God used marvelously and he caused a lot of trouble because he was very practical in his statements about the miracles and very certain that the miracles happened. And it was a time in some circles in England especially where there was a lot of heady, high-minded philosophy that was uh, seeking to modernize the scripture and do away with all the miraculous, the same type of thing we have today. But there was a a man working in one of the factories who had had a terrible drinking habit. And his habit had deprived his family. His habit had brought him down until he'd almost bankrupted them. And he met Jesus in a powerful way. And his life was transformed and he was delivered from his drink habit. And the men at work were on his case and telling him to deny the miracles that there was no proof. And one of them said to him finally in a heated argument, Do you really believe that Jesus took water and changed it into wine and that he could actually do that and that he did it? And the man says, I don't know because I wasn't there, but I know that in my house, Jesus changed beer to furniture. You see, there is a result of the Spirit of God that is plainly visible, even though the Spirit himself is invisible. And even if we don't understand the ways of the wind, we don't deny its existence. How foolish it is to deny the existence of a phenomena that is felt and tested and, and lifelong enduring for millions of people that have had the breath of God's Spirit upon their lives and have been dramatically and, and powerfully changed by the same experience that Jesus was telling Nicodemus is existent and possible for you. Nicodemus, you're not going to understand the kingdom. You're not going to experience the kingdom until you're born again. Simple as that. How can I be born? Oh, he says, you're born of the flesh and then you're born of the spirit. And then Nicodemus asks him this tremendous question. It's verse 9. How can these things be? How can this happen? Okay, say it's existent. Say it's real. How does it happen to me? Me, Nicodemus. After searching all my life and finding nothing, how do I get this into my being? And then Jesus gives him the simple answer. It's a powerful answer. First of all, Jesus charges him as being a master or teacher or leader of Israel and being ignorant of this simple truth. And then he says... It's not like many of you say, 
when you get in conferences and you come together and they say, boy, somebody just needs to go up and talk to God and come back and tell us. Jesus says in verse 13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And then in verse 14, masterfully, he leads him back to the Israeli experience, back to Old Testament law that they believed in, back to the commitment that he'd made as a, as a young man to be a Pharisee, and reminds him of what was written in the law that he'd been given to follow, of how simply God works. And he brings him to Numbers Chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, when the children of Israel were in the desert. And they'd followed God for several years. And God had supplied them with water when they were thirsty. And He'd made their clothing not wear out. And He'd been good to them. But now they were being led of the Lord through a part of the desert that was extremely difficult. We don't know what it was, but the Bible says the way was hard. Whether it was rocky whether it was cactus, whether it was hot, some physical obstacle made their way hard and the people began to grumble. And the grumbling caught hold until the people began to complain and voiced their opposition to Moses and said, I would to God we were back in Egypt. Wish we had flesh in our pots, meat in our cookers. I wish we had something to eat. I wish I had an enchilada. That kind of thing. You know, I want the leeks and garlics. I wish I had the saucy food and the, and the good things that we had. I am sick of, tired of this manna. God heard it. And the Bible says there was a releasing of fiery serpents. A serpent that was in the land. And its bite was so terribly venomous that the people would swell up and burn. And, and would have such terrible pain and then they would die. There was no cure for it, and the people began to die by the scores as they walked along, and these serpents would bite them. And then they realized that that was a response to their sin, and they called out to God in repentance. But they didn't call out to God this time. They called out to Moses and said, Moses, pray for us. Help us. And Moses called out to the Lord, and God said to Moses, He says, I want you to take one of those the likeness of a serpent and make it out of brass and hang it on a pole, lift it up on a pole and tell the people to just come and look at it. And everyone that looked at that serpent was healed of its bite. Now the problem that Israel had was is that when they began to grumble they didn't realize the reason they were grumbling is because they were already snake bit. The natural snake bit was nothing but a picture of the bite of Satan, the serpent, upon their lives already. And that they needed a change. They needed to be transformed. They were en route to becoming the people of God, but most of them had never surrendered to God. And God was going to give them a chance to surrender. By lifting up that serpent, the Bible had said that Jesus would step on the serpent's head when he spoke to Eve. All the way through the Bible, the serpent speaks of sin. We say, how could that be Jesus? Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, he became our sin. He was, in totality, our sin. 
And the reason he was brass is because brass always speaks of the judgment of God. The altars were made of brass. The brazen altar where the animals would die signified the fire, the burning, the judgment of God that was upon those animals to take away the sins of the people. And now we find this brazen serpent which speaks of your sin and my sin having fallen upon Jesus. What could they do to be free? First of all, they needed to face that they were sinners. But secondly, they needed to face that their sin was judged. And it was a type of Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. Look at verse 14 with me through 17. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The Israelites were commanded to look at the serpent. And as they would look, they would be healed. Jesus says, in the same way, when you look at what I do for you, and the giving of my life, and you believe me, it releases the power of the Spirit, and you were ushered into the birth process of becoming a child of God. And that's Jesus' simple explanation to Nicodemus on how to be born again. Believe me. Visualize that Jesus dying on the cross was for my sin. And trust Him. Trust His Word. Accept it as true. And your sins are rolled away, as the song says. And your night is turned to day. And somehow that spirit that is dissatisfied is brought into the peacefulness and the fullness of God's own presence. But now it's not done by water. It's done by the power of the Spirit Himself as you simply respond to what the cross means. Nicodemus could not yet understand that, but he was told that if you just believe me, even then, that whosoever believeth in him, the Son, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then this verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Israel didn't want to look. They didn't want to see the serpent. But it's as they faced it, they were freed. We don't want to see our sin, especially upon Jesus. But it's as we face it and believe that we're freed. Would you stand, please?